So, dear Alan, forgive my ignorance. I really had to pause there. I'm really not sure I can. Uh, but I was feeling, feeling benevolent today, so I decided, okay, we'll give him a break. So, okay, my son. <laughs> forgive my ignorance, but why, why must the revolution of the mind sciences wait for us Westerners? I never said Westerners. By the way, this man is from, what's your ethnic background? Half Chinese, and he says, us Westerners. <laughs> I know. I think moderners is really better. Mugi here is, is somewhat modern, too. Living Ulaanbaatar, man of the world, world traveler, fluent in three languages at least, and so forth. So I think it is on us moderners. The notion of Westerner, I think, is pretty much antiquated. Okay, so why, why must the revolution of the mind scientists wait for us moderners to achieve shamatha and start a contemplative observatory? Are there not already some realized yogis out there who would be willing to, att to attend the next Mind and Life conference and demonstrate their paranormal abilities? You see, you ask juicy ones. I imagine some of the more visible ones, like levitating, walking through walls, multiplying objects, etc., might be quite effective and putting an end to the whole scientific materialism debate and really kickstart, kickstart the revolution. Like that, kickstart it. Like a good motorcycle, yes. <coughs> Okie dokie. All right. It wouldn't be optimal at a minor life conference because that's, after all, taking place in the Dalai Lama's home, wiping in the Himalayas, and it could be staged, could have been staged by a David Copperfield kind that would come in and set it up, get all the, the, the mirrors in place beforehand, and then, ooh, you know, and it would be a million-dollar ent enterprise, but wow, everybody was there. And then the illusionist would take back all of his contraptions and put it in the bus, drive down to Delhi and say, mission accomplished. I've now started a mind revolution. No, the place, if that were to happen, the place would be in a care very carefully controlled laboratory at MIT or Cambridge or Cambridge, England or Stanford. But, you know, some absolutely controlled, airtight, you know, facility with absolutely skeptical physicists and biologists there to monitor and control the whole thing. And they would say, okay, yogi, if you're going to levitate, let me. I mean, this one's frankly so easy. You put the yogi on a scale, right? You put him on a scale and say, sit, <laughs> okay, stand back. And now you're watching the scale, say, go for it. That's pretty easy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you don't need high, extremely high tech for that. Um, and frankly, walking through walls, but it would have to be, you know, in a very carefully controlled environment. They, they, they know no professional illusionist has got in there to trick everybody. So let's imagine this. So my first answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but then, as you know very well, why should ignorance ever stop me from talking? <laughs> and so I would, I would like to imagine a scenario. Now, I will add this as a preface. Among my own teachers, most of them are a generation older than I, therefore most of them, that is my teachers, my lamas, are from the Tibetan tradition. Most of them are a good generation older than I, so most of them have passed away by now. Uh, and most of them were also trained in Old Tibet, Old Tibet. And if you'd like to read a fascinating account of what went on there, uh, read Radiant, what's it called, by Tuko Ogyen Rinpoche. Blazing, Blazing, Blazing Splendor, Blazing Splendor. It's not even very, it's, I think it's a Snow Lion book. Blazing Splendor, read, check out that book by a man who is a, a very accomplished yogi. Everybody recognized, everybody, you know, uh, all the Dingo they all know, oh, extremely accomplished yogi. So he would be like, you know, 
he would be like a person who runs a lab at MIT. As far as the Tibetans are concerned, this man knew what he was talking about. Absolute straight arrow. And he, he told the narrative of his life uh, from this first person, incredibly humble perspective. He never put himself up as something special. Uh, but he described a lot of things he had eyewitnessed in Tibet itself. And then Tony Karam told me that when he passed away, this, the same Lama that when he passed away, he displayed some very, very unusual manifestations. So that would be from a person who was from that culture and was there before the whole Chinese occupation, the genocide and all of that. I, I have heard from good sources that at least three of my own Tibetan teachers and Lamas in Tibet displayed paranormal abilities and then in, and in public and stopped doing so. Stopped doing so that when they came down to India, let alone coming to the West. And I think that's not uncommon. Now, does that mean they don't ever do it? No, I've heard other cases uh, that is from Dharma friends of mine, especially of my generation, people like Matthew Ricard and others uh, who have, I, I don't attribute this to Matthew himself, but of our generation of Western students, modern students who have trained with Tibetan Lamas, that sometimes, on rare occasions, a Lama will display something paranormal or exceptional, but privately, only to close students like that. When Mathieu took a um, world-class neuroscientist from Germany, I think I'll maybe just leave the name out, but he took him to Nepal, and he took him way up, I think it was to, to Tulshik Rinpoche's monastery up in the Himalayas. Uh, this man was outstanding scientist, neuroscientist, and very, very committed materialist. I've heard him speak, and he's an absolute believer. Uh, so Mathieu, the, the two of them are friends, took this... Um, this European neuroscientist up into the Himalayas to this monastery where yogis are really very intense yogis. And these yogis, these yogis and monks up there, one after another, they, you know, the question came up, what about paranormal abilities? And what Mathieu told me, so that's how far this chain link fence goes back to, just back to him and to my ear. He said, um, one after another of these monks and yogis described paranormal abilities they had witnessed themselves up there in the recesses of the Himalayas up in Nepal, but just amongst Tibetans. And this Western neuroscientist listened to all of this. And of course, he's just blowing his worldview out of the water. That is, the fundamental premise is the mind is just the brain, completely to smithereens. And he listened to all of this, and he just came, out, came away with a one-liner. If they're right, then I'm completely wrong. But of course, nothing was witnessed. He didn't witness it. They didn't say, and by the way, here's our levitator, here's, a wall, here's the guy who walks through walls, Here, here's the guy. They didn't. They just said, this is what I've seen, this is what I've seen. So it's an anomalous kind of situation. Now this is embedded in very ancient history in the Buddhist tradition. So this is not just, oh, what a weird little thing in the 20th, 21st century. How come? Gee whiz. This issue is really has, this has a root system going back 2,500 years. Right back to the teachings of the Buddha himself, where two things... So we're seeing two things here, right? They would display in Tibet, they display in, in, the, in the hinterlands of Nepal, but then not display at MIT or, you know, out in the public. You know, call a big, you know, if the Dalai Lama said, oh, you, we're going we're gonna to have some yogis here that will display paranormal abilities and we'll do it in, um, in uh, Central Park in New York City. Oh, whatever, be filled. <laughs> be filled like that, right? And the, and the NBC and ABC and Fox and everybody would, and everybody would be coming in to watch. And so that hasn't happened, and yet it's, it's not, not happening, but it's not happening like that, where it could really have some big waves, like a tsunami rolling over the scientific community. Well, so there's an anomaly there, yes and no, yes and no. The yes and no, yes and no traces right back to the teachings of the Buddha. 
Not in exactly the same way, but we're going to see a yes or no. We're going to see an ambivalence here. On the one hand, throughout the course of his life, if we read the Pali Canon, and that's the, those are really the most uncontested teachings of the Buddha's life and his teachings. I don't believe those, I, I myself, as a follower of the Mahayana tradition, I don't believe those are the only teachings he gave, but those are the ones that are just widely uncontested by good scholars. There they are. And in those teachings, in, in the Nikayas, in the, in the suttas, are, I can't even count the number of times when the, when the Buddha displayed paranormal abilities. I read one this morning where there was a, a miser, a, a father who was an incredible miser and just terribly afraid that anybody would know how much wealth he had so they might come and steal it. And his son got sick. And I think he was such a miser he wouldn't even pay, pay sufficiently you know, for the medication for his son to get well. So his son was dying and when his son was dying the, the father took him, put him on a bed outside of the house so people coming to look for the son wouldn't see how much wealth he had inside the house. That's pretty intense, right? And so the son is out there on the bed dying and the father's in, protecting his wealth but then feeling sad that he didn't give enough for his own son. And the Buddha was aware of this. The Buddha appeared and it said he sent a ray of light from his heart to the son that caught the son's attention who was dying and he directed his attention to the Buddha and he felt great faith and then he died and immediately took a very favorable rebirth. Now, that's a paranormal ability. I can't send rays of light from my, life, from my heart. Not that anybody else can see. That's just one of countless ones. Countless. I mean, I just, I really, would, I don't know whether it run into the hundreds or thousands, but there are many, many cases during the 45 years that the Buddha was teaching from the time of his enlightenment until his parinirvana. Many, many cases. So on the one hand, he was very public about it. And so were some of, a number of his disciples. Mogalanaputta or Maglayayanaputra in Sanskrit, displayed, really displayed publicly, uh, quite a number of extraordinary paranormal abilities, extrasensory perception, and so forth and so on. So on the one hand, it looked like, oh, Buddhism really thinks this is good. You display this, it can help arouse faith, that you can do all kinds of really good things in the world. And Atisha himself, now let's just jump forward, what would that be, 1,500 years? Atisha, the great Indian master, again, like, incredibly a great scholar, contemplative, uh, yogi, bodhisattva, he referred to developing, the, developing extrasensory perception, you might recall, from my notes from the Shamatha, you know, the, the, my standard seven-day retreat. And he says, a person with extrasensory perception, and that goes together with various paranormal abilities, can accrue more merit in one day than a person without them can accumulate in a hundred lifetimes. So you think, wow, that's a big thumbs up. And then in the, in among the Bodhisattva precepts, I'm giving all the pro, pro, pro. Among the Bodhisattva precepts, there's a precept that states, if you have, if you have, as a Bodhisattva have paranormal abilities, and there arises a circumstance where you could really help people by displaying them, and you don't, you've broken your Bodhisattva precept. Right? So that looks like, whoa, both the early teachings of the Buddha, recorded in the Pali Canon, the later Bodhisattva teachings, the later, later Indian development with Atisha, and then the Tibetan tradition where, read this book, you know, Radiant Splendor, Radiant Splendor, what? Blazing Splendor, Blazing Splendor. You say, whoa, they really were not shy about this at all. On the one hand, but the ambivalence is there from the beginning. And that is, there were occasions, Malcolm, correct me if I'm incorrect, but uh, at least I can paraphrase, where the Buddha said, I'm disgusted with these. I'm disgusted. Isn't there something to that effect? Whether it's quite that strong a verb or not, but clear ambivalence 
Not like, hey, everybody, develop paranormal abilities, and you too, like me, can levitate and do all these really cool things. That was really not the mood of it at all. So clearly, from the Buddha's own teachings, treat with caution. Treat with caution. And if you display them, check your motivation. That's what it really boils down to. Check your motivation. Is the motivation to show off? And one of the saddest stories on all of Buddhism is uh, Devadatta, who was the, the Buddha's cousin, wasn't it? Cousin, I believe. And he, he achieved shamatha. He was of the same family, cousin. And he became a disciple of the Buddha. He became a monk. And he achieved not only shamatha, he achieved the actual stage of the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas. So, really a samadhi master. And out of developing those samadhis, he developed some extraordinary par paranormal abilities. So, looking good. And he displayed them. He was very happy to display them. To make an impression. To make an impression. He especially wanted to impress a king. To show him, I'm really something hot here. So he did. And then, this little seed of envy grew in his heart with respect to his cousin, the Buddha. And feeling, hey, I'm such hot stuff myself. I've got samadhi, I've got paranormal abilities, and he's getting old. He should really step down and let his kinsman, me, step in and I'll take over. I'll take over. I'll, be, I'll become head of the Sangha. So he went to the Buddha. I don't know exactly how old the Buddha was, but he was not at death's door. And he, he accosted his kinsman and said, uh, you know, Gautama, Siddhartha, um, you're getting old, getting kind of long in the tooth there. Uh, how about you step down and appoint me as the new head? I've got some really good ideas. You know, the son wanted to take over the dad's business, and you know, I think we need some real make shake, shake down here. And I've got some new precepts I'd like to throw out to the, sung, uh, to the sangha. Uh, we need to really, you know, spruce, spruce up things a bit, tighten, tighten up the ship. And the Buddha let him know in absolutely no uncertain terms that that would not be happening. And his suggestion was ill-conceived. And then Devadatta repeatedly tried to kill him. And, he and here's the good news. As his mind turned to the dark side, I mean, really, literally did, he'd be caught up with envy and hatred, malice, and so forth, and he teamed up with a, with a friend of his who was a prince who killed his father. So the two teamed up. I'll kill the Buddha, you kill your father, and we'll take over. We'll be, I'll do the spiritual side, and you do the political side. That was their agenda. But as his mind turned to the dark side, then he lost all of his powers, he lost his jhana, he lost everything. So that's the good news, that you cannot develop shamatha and then let your mind become really evil and then just tap into the powers of shamatha and use them for evil things. Because if your mind goes into malice, that's one of the five obscurations. And that is not compatible with shamatha. One's got to go. Either you have to relinquish, abandon the mental addiction, or you lose your shamatha. And he lost his shamatha. Happy days. That's why I teach shamatha with such relaxation. <laughs> if somebody achieves it, they will not turn into the dark sorcerer. You know? So, ambivalence. Ambivalence from the side of the Buddha. Ambivalence from the side of the Vinaya. Ambivalence that it's so easy to get caught up there. If you're an Indian living in India 2,500 years ago, power seduces. And there's the phrase from modern, I think maybe the business world, political world, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, there's just an awful lot of mileage behind that, a lot of, a lot of empirical evidence to support those kind of statements. So extracting, because the paranormal abilities are simply power. The extrasensory perceptions are knowledge, but knowledge that's easily converted into power, right? Real easily. If I can look into, 
if I can look into your safe, if I, if I can develop remote viewing and watch you open your safe and get the combination, my knowledge can turn into enabling me to rip you off. And so many other different ways. Right? So, from historic times, the earliest times, some real caution about using them at all, even in classical India, in Tibet, at all, unless two things are really fully there. One is absolute purity of motivation. That this is it here, this is being displayed. If one is thinking, shall I or shall I not? That that which is arousing the action is just pure altruism. It is, it's not to call attention to yourself, not to make show off, nothing except for this could be a benefit. The Buddha saw that by directing the ray of light from his heart, he could catch this person just in time and help catalyze virtue that would propel him to a very fortunate rebirth. Bam, he did it. That's it. No other motivation. And so, two things. The motivation, is the motivation pure? Is it sheer altruism? Is it for the sake of alleviating suffering, arousing and inspiring sentient beings on the path to enlightenment? If not, then don't do it. But it's not enough. It's not enough. An old aphorism in Buddhism says, I only paraphrase it, compassion without wisdom is bondage. As wisdom comp without compassion is bondage. So, and we say in, in English, or oh, um, the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions. Right? So the motivation may be very good, but it's not enough. There must be wisdom. There must be real wisdom that, okay, the motivation is good. Now, if I were to do this, can I, to a very high probability, with a great deal of confidence, can I foresee what are the most likely repercussions? What will be the fallout? for my doing this. The Buddha could see it. The person took a very fortunate rebirth, inspired some other people, and case closed. There was no downside. Nobody suffered. But seeing that if I should do this, will it all be good? Will it be 50-50? Will it be 60-40? What's the fallout going to be? And if you do not have a very clear sense, this is overwhelmingly going to be positive, and little or no negative side effect, then even if your motivation is pure, you don't do it. So now, now we, go to our, now we go to our scenario. Let's imagine that we have yogi, some yogi from Tibet, came fresh out of Tibet. Maybe it's one of these yogis, and there are still a few of them, who during the Cultural Revolution and the hell years in Tibet uh, just managed to hide away in a cave. And the whole blizzard, the Holocaust, just swept by, the Red Guard, the, all of that, you know, Cultural Revolution, all of that swept by, and the yogi's just living in the cave, eating flower essence, metal june, just eating flower essence, not even getting any food, right? just meditating for 40 years. Okay, just imagine, Kate, this is hypothetical, but not wild. And then imagine the yogi comes out, ripe old age of 70 years old, and then sees all oh, these poor modern people, they're completely deluded and thinking the mind is just the brain or brain function. Ah, what compassion, what compassion. It's like they're all living in an institution, like a mental institution. They're walking around, you know, just blathering crazy. And they're missing out. That, that slams the door on their pursuing the path to enlightenment. They're missing the whole point of life. The meaning of life itself is to achieve enlightenment. And they've slammed the door on it, thinking, I am a brain, I am a brain. And so out of tremendous compassion, Sorry. <laughs> so, imagine the, um, after tremendous compassion, the yogi finds some, some, some Westerner and, and says, you know, just shows him, come into the room and I'll show you what I can do. You know, and levitates, walks through walls and displays, you know, what he can do. And says, 
take me to a place where I can have the biggest impact. And so imagine this person is a graduate of MIT. That'd be a pretty good place. It could be Harvard, but either one, across the river. And so this Westerner said, oh, great, great, sure, I'll, I'll pay for your ticket. They zip off to MIT, and he comes into the controlled lab, and he's about ready to do a whole roster of things. Remote viewing, precognition, clear audience, walking through walls, making himself go invisible, uh, doubling his body into two different forms at the same time, um, levitating, of course, that would just be the, the warm-up, you know, just the warm-up. Because it's really not very good for transportation, you know, just up, up and down, up and down. Flying, maybe he could fly around, that might be good for transportation. So he comes in with this whole array, right, this whole array of practices and abilities, and he comes to MIT Control, and we have a whole audience, and now we have the live feed, you know, television, because they, they, they got wind, this is for real. This is, he's not, this is not to see if he can do it. We know he can do it. And now he's going to display this in a public setting, carefully controlled scientifically, so there's no possibility of just illusion, just you know, ordinary deceit. And then imagine the yogi does it. Slam dunk across the boards. The whole thing. Remote viewing everything. And takes an hour. And he says, well, that's all, folks. <laughs> that's it, you know. Now just imagine, you know, you know what goes on in the United States, imagine among the major governmental institutions and private institutions, which would be the most interested in these type of abilities and would be willing to pay the most to be able to replicate them themselves? The CIA, that'd be a good start. Who else? How about the Defense Department? They've already paid millions. They, don't, they would say, we don't want to hear about your ethics crap. We're going to find out how you can do it. And in fact, you've just bought yourself a permanent visa to the United States because we are not letting you go and letting the People's Republic of China get their hands on you or Russia or anybody else that we feel uneasy about. You have just become a permanent resident in the United States. Congratulations, we're giving you a green card for free, whether you like it or not, because you are not leaving. And we're going to figure out now, what is it about you? Are you an alien? You look like you're Tibetan, but aliens may just look like they're Tibetans. Are you alien? Do you really have a brain, or do you have some super-duper organ that nobody's ever seen? We need to know about your brain. The more intimately, the better, and we may need to cut it a bit. We need to really know, and what about your genetic system? Is this genetic, or did you really meditate? We don't, you just say you meditated, but we don't know that. Maybe you are born that way. Maybe your mother was an extraterrestrial. Maybe it's your father. We have to keep all the options open here. But what we know is, what we know is, you're just a human being and you're an animal. That is, what we know is, here's a physical person here, and we're going to check you out genetically and try to replicate those genes. We're going to check you out brain-wise and try to replicate. We're going to ask you to do that again, and we will monitor your brain in every single way, and we will absolutely not let you out of our grip. And if you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Buddhist teachings are about compassion. <laughs> That's when everybody just burst into laughter, you know. It's about compassion and about wisdom and about ethics and about developing the bodhisattva ideal. 
and about generosity and overcoming anger and jealousy and so forth. That's what the Buddhist teachings are really about. Are you finished? Now, back to your brain. <laughs> so it's really no laughing matter. I think the CIA and the Defense Department have already spent millions. They poured it into the Stanford Research Institute, SRI, um, when they were doing research exactly on this, but without having any yogi from the Himalayas. And so, but when it hits the headlines, when it hits the New York Times, it hits you know, all the major media, it hits the evening news, what's going to come out of that is the yogi has power, incredible power. Because that's what's displayed, it's power. Americans like power. So do all the other modern people, like power. That's why we spend so much on technology, we spend so much on military. Or we're even now developing, I've heard the United States now has some rocket that can send, without going nuclear, deliver a staggering load of explosive. With, I read it, pinpoint accuracy. So if you got hit by it, you just think you got nuked. But it wasn't nuked, it was a clean bomb. But it blew your whole neighborhood to smithereens, right? Pinpoint accuracy. So we keep on developing better and better weapons. And we're thinking, we could use that. I'm sure we could use that. Boy, would I like a tank that could levitate. <laughs> Boy, I mean, just, oh, what you just, you live a long life. Because what you have, we want, and we know exactly what we're going to do with it. And you can keep your compassion and loving kindness and all that la-di-da business to yourself, frankly. We're really busy because we're f f battling, battling you know, wars in Afghanistan. And we've got enemies here. We have the war on terror. We have the war on drugs. We have a lot of wars going on. And I think you can really help us out. And frankly, we want your brain. So, I don't think this is too silly. If what is displayed manifestly is power, and you say, oh, by the way, compassion and wisdom, people will heal power, because that's what you display. Will that inspire people to achieve enlightenment, or will it inspire the overwhelming majority to get greater power? I think the latter. That would just be from the scientific, the industrial, military complex side. Think also, though, would you really want to be that yogi now, knowing that there are religious fundamentalists in America that will watch that? And since you're not a Christian or a Jewish or whatever their, their tradition may be, I'm not picking on any one religion, but since you're not one of them, you're probably possessed by the devil. Which means it will be a righteous act to rub you out. Because we don't want manifestations, people demon-possessed, devil-possessed in this world. And you clearly demonstrate it, you levitate it. That's what devil-possessed people do. So you'll be a marked man from that day forward. You will be a marked man. I think that's just guaranteed. We have so many loonies. And again, I'm not pointing to anyone, anyone, any one religion. I'm not beating up on any one religion. But there are religious fundamentalists that will say, you're either God, and if you're not, if you're not God, or son of God, or emanation of God, then you're the devil, and we know what to do with devils. We have a long history of knowing what to do with devils. So I think you're going to get it from both sides. From the materialistic, scientific, the atheistic side, they're going to want everything you've got and they will not care about the trappings. Ethics, compassion, overcoming mental afflictions. So we don't need that. We're quite happy with the way we are already, but we do want more power. 
And then you have the religious fundamentalists just wanting to kill you or worship you or doing both, worship and then kill. We have a long pattern of that. So that's a long answer to a question for which my short answer is I don't know. But this doesn't seem to me wild or crazy. And it does seem to be quite uniform that yogis who allegedly can display such abilities have not done so. Not in public setting, not in a scientific setting. There have been multiple yogis who have been to first-rate labs at, at Harvard, at Princeton, at University of Wisconsin, UC Berkeley, and so forth. No dearth of that. And in Europe. But I don't know of one who's even remotely come close to showing paranormal abilities. I do know that when, I think it was when the first group of yogis came from Bhutan, I think, they came to Richie Davidson's lab in Wisconsin. He told me this. It's a lovely story. Uh, but these, these really accomplished yogis came. They'd meditated anywhere, I believe, from 10 to 60,000 60, hours. So they're really accomplished. I think mostly Bhutanese, maybe some Tibetan also. I don't know all the details, but they were really seasoned yogis. And he managed to get them to come to his lab. He's a very sweet man, by the way, Richie, Richie Davidson. And um, so they studied their brains. They did, you know, rigorous, good, straightforward, solid, non-CIA, non-defense. You know, it was just good, clean science. No criticism whatsoever. But what I, one of the stories I remember out of this is they stayed at the University, University of Wisconsin kind of fac, faculty, uh, not faculty, visiting lodging. I stayed there myself when I visited once. But it's very nice. It's a hotel. But it's for visitors to the university, including faculty from other universities and so forth. But it's a very nice hotel. And so these monks were all put up at this hotel. And they stayed there for however, however many days that the uh, research went on, where they put themselves into MRI and had EEG caps and all of, the, uh, all of that business. And then when they, when they left, the, what I think it was Richie told me himself, when they left, the hotel staff just gathered around these yogis who were departing because they were so touched by them. There was such kindness, such warmth, such humility, just such goodness about them that they almost didn't want them to leave. You know, they were just, oh, you, have to, you really have to go, you really have to go. And so that was the impression the monks left behind, is that they were kind, they were gentle, they were warm-hearted. And that's the impression they really made, and I'm sure they made that on Richie himself and Antoine Lutz and the other people in the lab, as I know they've made that kind of impression elsewhere as well. So no levitation, but what they came away with is, oh, you know, the Western scientists, oh, but they're such kind people. And I've seen the Dalai Lama, of course, he's engaging with quite a number of scientists since I've been involved with the mind alive since its beginning in 1987. He doesn't have, never even remotely does he display paranormal abilities. At the same time, I've heard a lot of stories around His Holiness that, display, that would suggest there's more going on than a simple Buddhist monk, really clearly, on many occasions. And yet, he is a simple Buddhist monk. But what he displays to scientists in, these, in, in that particular type of encounter, and he, he's displayed so often, is the scientists come away, not uniformly, they're not all the same, but very commonly, the scientists will come away from a five-day meeting with him and just deeply moved, just deeply moved by his, his goodness, his humility, his open-mindedness, his sincerity, his warmth, his sense of humor, a man who's deeply good. And that's what they get. That's what they get. So they may or may not you know, really take seriously his comments about reincarnation or the empirical evidence behind it, or sometimes he'll allude. I think it was maybe in one of the Mind and Life conferences he mentioned that he had spoken with someone <coughs> who I believe came from Eastern Tibet. And this person said, this was, their experience was like 50 years ago, but said where they were growing up in a valley in Eastern Tibet, 
there was one nun, one yogini nun, who had her cave up on the side of the hill, and she would just regularly fly back and forth across the valley. They would just see her, the flying nun, you know? And the, and the person just reported this to the Dalai Lama, you know, this I saw, this I saw, and he said, oh, very good, very good, you know? Eyewitness, empirical evidence, you know? Or one, one of my teachers, one of my teachers, his name is Kuno, one of my very beloved teachers, he's one of my earliest language teachers, marvelous man, true practitioner as well. But he taught me Tibetan language back in 71, 72. He visited Dashijong. I mentioned Tashijong earlier as this kind of the, the Green Beret, Navy Seals, kind of really hardcore yogi center in northern India, uh, where this Obdupan Rinpoche, who said, I can remember all my past lives, he was trained there. So my teacher, Gunala, Gungong Awantundup, he visited there on one occasion. This he told me from his lips to my ears. And these are, this is a, a, a locus, a, a, a nucleus of really, really intense meditators. And he was visiting there, because he has a great love of dharma, he's a practitioner, studied dharma. And he was there sleeping, he stayed over at least one night. In the middle of the night he, he woke up, and he saw that the, the, how do you say, that the door between his room and the adjacent, adjacent room was slightly ajar, and uh, open. And there was a bit of light coming in. And so he thought, oh, I wonder what what's happening in the next, next room. In the next room was a yogi's room. And he, so he peeked, peeked through the crack. And he saw at least one, I don't remember how many he told me, one, two or three. Yogis levitating. They were just deeply in meditation, but clearly off the ground, way up off the ground. He just, you, know. <laughs> you know, that's what he saw. And I would just, I, I've known Kuno now for almost 40 years. I know him to be an impeccably honest man, ex- exceptionally intelligent, very well educated, and I've never, I d- there's just not a deceitful bone in his body, and he knows I already have faith in Dharma. You know, I've had faith in Dharma, you know, confidence in faith for a long time. So he didn't need to say that to, you know, give me a little pep talk with a lie. That would just be so absurd. It kind of, a, it just, it's, he'd have to be crazy to do that. And so I just have absolutely no reason to doubt his eyesight, his intelligence, or his veracity. And that's what he told me. And other people have said similar things that they've seen. So, I do expect that if this should ever happen, the repercussions will be enormously complex. That I would say with no doubt at all. Very complex. And, and it will be a mixture of some people being inspired and other people just their mental afflictions going into high gear. Wow, can we use this? I can make money off of that. I can conquer my foes with that. We can be number one with that. And boy, my, my, my hand always goes into that mudra. Oh boy, let's get that yogi. Let's get that yogi. And if the yogi says, well, I'm sorry, but you can't develop this without ethics, without developing pure renunciation and bodhicitta, the person could come back, you couldn't, but that doesn't mean we can't. And we'll study you carefully and we'll figure out how to get the shortcut and not have to go through those years, because we don't have time. You spent 40 years in a cave, we have no time for that. We have to do this quickly. And we're going to bring in all of modern technology. We will take your, your EEG signature and we're going to pump that into somebody else's brain. We're going to take your genes and clone you. We're going to extract whatever we can and whatever we need to, to fast track this here, because we want what you've got. And don't, 
don't waste time talking about ethics and all that other business. We're not that, we're not interested really. So I think it's, I think if anybody displayed that, it would get real complex really quickly. Some people would be inspired. Some people would be pissed off. And some people would look at it with just sheer lust. And that's a complicated derivative. Yeah. So in contrast, and I hope that this, I didn't say this explicitly, I don't think, but I do emphatically mean it. When I speak of our basic training center here, the mind center, and the contemplative observatory, hopefully going up in the not too distant future, uh, I have no notion whatsoever that, oh, this will be the place, this will be the place, and everybody else can watch us start the contempt, you know, absolutely not. If there were 50, that would be good. If there were 100, that would be twice as good. This would be, and, and if there were people doing this in different traditions and tradition teach, to different, different teachers and so forth and so on, that would be fantastic. So I think, but it's got to start someplace, and if it's not already started someplace else, then let's start it here, you know, start something here, a little spark of people really developing shamatha out of pure ethics, pure motivation, larger vision, meaningful motivation, all of that. And if we have, and here's where I see, now this is sober, and, and time is going out, and I'm not, I'm not going to go on much over at all. I'm not going to go off 10 minutes over. But if scientific studies were done here, uh, people coming in who, in studies before and after, as we did in the Shamata project, coming in before, you see, this person has no paranormal abilities, does not have an exceptional memory. We tried to get them to levitate, and all they could do was hop. We have them walk through walls, they just got bruised-nosed. And so, really, they're one of us. They're one of us. And we checked out the parents. Both parents were human. We checked it out. Neither one was an alien. Uh, you know, check that one out carefully. And so you start out with ordinary people. A nice selection from, from half Chinese and Russia and East Germany and Mexico and, and, and Holland and I don't know how many more uh, countries and ethnic groups here. But a nice diversity. And then we have somebody who's in his teens and somebody who's not in her teens. Happily, somebody in her 70s, and with a, such a clear mind and excellent health. I'm so glad you're here. But that's a nice bandwidth. We actually have four generations here. Isn't that cool? So it's a nice, and we have, I think, just, I've never counted, and I, think, I don't think I will, but I think it's just about 50-50 for gender. I don't, there was never any explicit gender bias. I don't think it's here at all. But if we had a group like this, and out of, out of such a group, there are some people who become very committed to achieving shamatha, and then this is all monitored. From the beginning, where you see, yep, you're a human being, you're an ordinary being, don't have paranormal abilities. And then, out of this basis of ethics, and with the cultivation of the four immeasurables, then gradually the mind stabilizes, and we track these people. Not in one study, but you know, over the next five years, ten years. And we monitor them with the best technology that we have, behaviorally, uh, in terms of neurophysiology, using fMRI and, and, and uh, structural MRI, and EEG, of course monitor them every way we can, as in the shamatha project, and then we monitor them all the way through to achieving shamatha. And so we have all these multiple markers on it, right? And then out of that, if people are able to display or to train further and then display some unusual abilities, number one, have it absolutely anonymous, absolutely ironclad anonymous, so whoever's being, whoever's being studied, their identity will absolutely be guaranteed iron-clad, titanium-clad, it will not come out. It will be subject A, subject B, subject C. It will not be this person, that person. I think it's enormously important. 
So the data does come out. It is made pub- it is, it is public, but nobody can, becomes a target for religious fundamentalists. Nobody's made into a celebrity. The greatest yogi on earth come and worship here. You know, leave all of that out. It's just what we're interested in is the phenomena that every human being has the capacity to manifest. And then out of that, together with the cultivation of compassion, of deepening ethics, overcoming mental afflictions. So measurements can be done. Is there less anger? Is there less craving? Is there less arrogance? That can be studied. That's not metaphysical. And so if we see that this is all of a package, that the quality of ethics improves, mental afflictions subside, sanity increases, compassion, loving kindness increase, and out of this whole nest of ethics and the cultivation of wisdom and, met- and wisdom and compassion, out of this comes samadhi, and out of samadhi comes paranormal abilities. And that's studied and then mo- measured very systematically in a controlled setting, and we demonstrate that it is possible, but by, by an anonymous person, that could be helpful. I envision, I imagine, the benefits of that could far outweigh the downside when it's utterly embedded from the beginning in this meaningful context. And then this is just a little, a little, how do you say, a little side effect. Oh, by the way, the person can levitate. By the way, the person has remote viewing, like that. So I think the embeddedness in ethics and the context of wisdom and compassion, that's the real message. I'll end on this note, but um, I don't know which one of my teachers or whether it was a lot of them collectively have stated that the greatest miracle or supernormal ability, paranormal ability, that the Buddha demonstrated was not in the great big paranormal contest that he had with various non-Buddhist sorcerers and he beat them all. So he was the greatest sorcerer of them all. That was very impressive. And there's a, a, a day, um, the, the celebration of the Buddha's paranormal abilities. So he was not bashful about them at all. But greater than all of those is the Buddha's ability to lead other people, to lead sentient beings to the complete elimination of their mental afflictions, to complete freedom of an arhat and to the realization of Buddhahood itself. That is the greatest. That's the greatest paranormal ability. Right? And if that's, if that's the message it gets across, that's the power of the teachings to alleviate your own mental afflictions, to arouse the virtue of compassion, of ethics, of patience, of enthusiasm, meditation, of wisdom. If that's what gets across, then that's good. So, so, began with I don't know, end with I don't know. Maybe it'll happen one day, but I think if it happens in that context, the chances of benefit are much higher. So, oh, lasso, so it's dinner time. See you all tomorrow morning.